So again, this comes, um, uh, the, this message on Jonah chapter 2 comes in the larger setting of a study of the minor prophets. This is the first of the minor prophets that we're studying, um, not the first that appears in order in the Bible, because the canonical order um, does not necessarily reflect chronological order. In other words, the order that we find the books of the minor prophets in the Bible doesn't necessarily, isn't necessarily how they lived in terms of chronology. Uh, so we're trying as best as we can. We don't know for sure in some cases exactly when each of the minor prophets prophesied, but there's a general consensus for most of them. And Jonah comes very early in the minor prophets, and so that's why we are dealing with him first. Uh, so uh, Jonah chapter 2 Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up or out upon the dry land. Thus the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Uh, Well, in chapter 1, we saw how the Lord had called Jonah uh, to go to the city of Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and there cry out against it. Uh, or to call out against it, meaning to denounce it, uh, to proclaim to it its sins, and uh, to announce that God was going to bring judgment upon the city. For their evil, God said, has come up before me. As we saw, their evil consisted in large part of being an extremely violent people, an extremely uh, brutal people, even boasting of the torture and death that they inflicted upon their captives, uh, the peoples whom they subjugated. And and here I wish to reiterate and emphasize a point that we made last week, and I think it deserves to be um, emphasized, and that is that Scripture makes clear just how detestable violence is to God. Any unjustified use of force that would be considered, uh, would fall under the definition of violence that results in bodily harm or even the death uh, of someone else. Uh, For instance, we read in Psalm 5, the Lord abhors bloodthirsty men. The Lord abhors bloodthirsty men. Psalm 11, his soul hates the one who does violence. His soul hates the one who does violence. Again, very powerful terms. And the matter could hardly be put into any more stark terms, and and the Lord could hardly make it any plainer. Notice that it doesn't merely say that the Lord hates violence but he hates the man who loves violence. There's something that's very detestable and abhorrent about such a person. That doesn't mean that God cannot save such a person, 
that if such a person cannot find mercy from God, because surely he can when he repents. But I think it is deserving of being pointed out that God detests, he hates, he abhors violence. And as we mentioned last week too, it's not often understood that when God brought the flood upon the ancient world, it wasn't because of just sin in general, but because of the sin of violence in particular. And it mentions that in Genesis 6, verses 11 and 13. Their violence has come up before me, and so he determined to destroy the earth. Now, you'll sometimes hear it said that God makes no distinction between sins, that they're all equal and equally sinful in his eyes. But this isn't true, not at all. Um, Violence is a sin that is particularly heinous in God's eyes. But just to the fact that God does make distinctions between various sins Um, Consider this, that Jesus talks about being uh, the judgment being more tolerable or more bearable for some people in the day of judgment than for others. Um, For instance, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, um, and in this context, he even mentions uh, the people of Nineveh. But in, again, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, he says... It says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two pagan cities who didn't have the knowledge of God, but if the mighty works that had been done in these Jewish cities had been done in you, it says they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So this passage, among other things, speaks to different levels or different degrees of sin and guilt. Jesus also said in another place, Luke chapter 12, that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now notice that both were punished for their disobedience but punished with different degrees of severity according to their different degrees of guilt, which in this case was predicated upon different degrees of knowledge concerning their moral duty. But the point here is that there are differences in terms of the degrees of guilt associated with various sins. They're not all equal. And also consider the fact that some sins are far more serious and disastrous in their consequences. It's much worse for a man if you kill him than if it is to steal a hundred bucks, right? They're both sins, but it's far more disastrous uh, one is than the other. So, um, and, and when we think about it, what could be more vicious or what more serious than violence, unjustifiably causing permanent physical harm or even death to another human being? And this is what the Assyrians were guilty of. This is my point. This is what we're going to. Going to. This is why God deemed Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, to be worthy of judgment because of their great violence. And we spoke about some of the forms of that violence uh, last week. And so this was their evil that had come up before God and for which he determined that they should be destroyed. 
Now, chapter 1 also tells us that Jonah rebelled against God's call to go to Nineveh and that he sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. Does anyone remember where he sought to go? We'll have a little more interactive sermon today. Tarshish. Uh, and where is Tarshish, as best as we can tell? <laughs> right, in the opposite direction. In the furthest reaches of the west, um, the west coast of Spain, um, there was a, a Greek colony there called Tartessos. And many scholars believe that that was um, uh, the biblical Tarshish. So he, Jonah seeks to flee from the presence of the Lord by going in the opposite direction. Now, we find other instances of men whom God called showing some reluctance in answering the call, right? We find Moses, for instance, after asking a series of questions about the nature of the call that God had given to him, we find Moses saying, Lord, please send somebody else, right? There's kind of a give and take, answers, questions and answers between him and God. Lord, who, who am I that the people of Israel should listen to me? I mean, why, why should they believe me? God says, well, here are some miracles for you to perform. If they don't believe the first one, perform the second. If they don't believe the second one, perform the third. And by that time, they will believe you, that I have sent you. But Lord, I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not an eloquent man. Never have been, and I'm not now. God says, well, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it, is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And that's when Moses says, Lord, please send somebody else. <laughs> right? There was a reluctance on Moses' part. But even though he was reluctant at first, he eventually went. He answered God's call. We might think of Isaiah. He was given a vision of the majestic holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6, one of the great um, passages of the Bible and speaking about the transcendence and the glory of God. And Isaiah was overwhelmed, and he felt himself to be unworthy, not only of the, of the prophetic office, but even of life itself. Woe is me, I am undone, he says. <clears throat> but after his sin is taken care of, uh, then Isaiah answers the call that God gave him. Jeremiah, too, was reluctant to answer God's call because of his young age and out of fear of those who opposed him. But they all eventually ended up answering God's call. So some of God's choicest servants were at first reluctant to answer his call, but Jonah's reluctance is more than just a mere reluctance. His is a bit unique. His is not reluctance, but actually refusal. It's direct disobedience. The reason for his disobedience isn't revealed until later in the book. We've mentioned it already. But when that reason is revealed, it doesn't speak too well of Jonah, does it? If the reason had been fear or if it had been a sense of inadequacy to the task, or out of a sense of personal unworthiness, well, it's still wrong to disobey God, but it would be at least a little bit more understandable. But Jonah's reason revealed something far worse. It revealed an ugly lack of pity on Jonah's part, a truly merciless attitude towards the people of Nineveh. As we talked about, I think, in our first an introductory lesson on Jonah, it was he didn't want people to receive, the, the Ninevites in particular, to receive the mercy of God. When we get to chapter 4, he says, Lord, this is what I said at the beginning, that if I were to go and I were to preach and they were to repent, you would have mercy. And the implication is, I didn't want this to happen. The Assyrians were the enemies of Israel. Many of Jonah's own people had suffered the 
kinds of violence, the decapitations, the severed limbs, the violent and gruesome deaths and tortures that the Assyrians inflicted. And he said, I don't want those people to receive mercy. And so I'm not going to go to them. So his reason for not going does not speak too well of him. And I would just encourage each of you, as I try to encourage myself, that regardless of whatever our natural feelings Uh, whatever natural feelings we might be tempted to have with respect to God's word towards us or his command or his call for us, we should always respond affirmatively. I think often of John Calvin's personal motto, which I just love. He says, my heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. He had this, uh, this was an official personal motto. It was like a logo that he had, and it was a picture of a heart um, in his hands being lifted up to God. My heart, um, my heart, I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. And whenever we learn God's will for us, whether from Scripture or we sense God calling us to do something, that should be our response. Now, as we said last week, Jonah ran from God, <clears throat> but he couldn't hide from God. Uh, when he attempted to flee by ship, God caught him, forced him overboard, and appointed a great fish to swallow him. And by the way, it's often assumed that the creature that swallowed Jonah was a whale. You see the picture on the screen here. Uh, But neither the Hebrew word in Jonah nor the Greek word used in the Gospels to refer to the great fish specifically means whale. Some skeptics of the Bible have said, well, whales don't exist in the Mediterranean Sea. Well, apparently they don't today, but maybe they did then. But even so, The Bible doesn't necessarily imply a whale. It just means a a very large creature of the sea. That's all it means. And so we don't know what the species was. And the the words, uh, the relevant words from Hebrew and Greek don't indicate this. So chapter 1 ends by Jonah saying in verse 17, it says, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you may have heard this language elsewhere right, with reference to the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the significance of the time frame is that a person was considered truly and officially dead after three days and three nights. Um, And so although God miraculously preserved Jonah's life during this, his emergence from the fish after three days is a powerful symbol of resurrection. And we see Jesus pointing to the experience of Jonah in the New Testament uh, um, as, as a symbol or an example of his own emergence from the grave after three days. He says, as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. Um, again, implying or signifying his resurrection. Now, in chapter 2, we find what our text calls a prayer. In verse 1, it says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. He prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Of the fish. Um, there's no place where prayer is not appropriate, <laughs> right? Um, it doesn't, doesn't matter the circumstances, uh, prayer or the place, prayer is always appropriate. Uh, but notice again that this is a prayer, but it's in the form of a psalm, uh, like we find in the book of Psalms. And it was composed under the most unusual circumstances of any psalm or prayer that we find in the Bible. David composed psalms while he was hidden away in the cave of Adullam. Uh, Jonah composed this psalm while he was hidden away in the belly of the fish. I don't mean to say that he actually wrote it down at that time or that he 
uh, composed it even by his own natural understanding or talent, but that the Holy Spirit came upon him um, in the belly of the great fish, and the Holy Spirit brought these very words to Jonah's mind. So it's a a Holy Spirit-inspired prayer that truly reflected Jonah's feelings at the moment, but it obviously wasn't written down until later. I don't think he had the means to write <laughs> or the ability in the great when he's in the belly of the fish. Now, the prayer takes the form of a psalm of thanksgiving, which expresses gratitude to God for deliverance from danger and death. And we find a number of these in the book of Psalms, a prayer of thanksgiving specifically for deliverance from danger and death. For example, Psalms 18, 30, 40, and 116, and there are a number of others as well, where the psalmist is thanking God, expressing his gratitude for deliverance from danger and death. And of course, David had multiple reasons or multiple occasions to write psalms of this kind. What makes Jonah's uh, prayer uh, so distinctive is the fact that he sings it or he prays it while he's still in the belly of the fish. Um, The fact that this is a prayer of thanksgiving for a deliverance and that he prays it while he's still inside the fish's belly means that he has faith that God will safely bring him through this ordeal, right? He's already thanking God for deliverance when as yet he is not fully delivered. But it also seems to suggest that he sees his being swallowed by the great fish as one of the means by which God has delivered him from death, the death of drowning. After all, he's still alive. (laughs) He's in the fish. It appears that he doesn't at this point see that, oh, I have escaped one form of death only to suffer another form of death. I'm going to be devoured by this great fish. But he sees this as God's means of rescuing him from the depths of the sea. And though he doesn't perhaps yet know how it's going to, uh, to turn out, he at least sees God's hand behind this providential act of being swallowed by the fish. Now, <clears throat> the prayer begins in verse 2 with what we might call a summary statement, which Jonah will go on to expand upon and explain in the following verses. Verse 2 reads like this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now let's break this down just a bit, because the verse is a good example of a very prominent feature of Hebrew poetry that we've mentioned before, but it's been quite some time, and it would be good maybe to review And it's a feature that's referred to as synonymous parallelism. Synonymous parallelism. And the first thing to note is that the verse is composed of two couplets. A couplet is a pair of lines. So there are two pairs of lines. Lines one and two form a couplet, and lines three and four form a couplet. Both couplets mention Jonah's act of prayer. In the first, he says, I called out to the Lord. Obviously, it's an expression of prayer. In the second, he says, I cried. Not in the sense of I wept or I grieved, but I cried out. I lifted up my voice to God. The two expressions um, are synonymous. I called out to the Lord and I cried. Both couplets also mention the fact that he prayed in a time of grave danger. In the first line, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress In the second couplet, he says, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Sheol is a Hebrew expression meaning the realm of death. Um, And it's synonymous um, with out of of my distress. And so 
the first line of each couplet is synonymous with the other. That's why we refer to it as synonymous parallelism. The lines run parallel, and they're synonymous. They restate the same thing, but in different words. Um, And it gives emphasis and just a variety of expression uh, to what the the writer wishes to say. Um, And then, of course, the second line in each couplet is synonymous with each other. They both speak of the Lord answering Jonah's plea. So, again, he answered me. This is what God did in answer to my calling out to him. And then changing from third person to second person, and you heard my voice, the last line. So they both refer uh, to God answering his plea. So lines one and three are synonymously parallel, and so are lines two and four. Now, I bring this out because this is a helpful way to understand the poetic passages of Scripture. Uh, Many times you come across a figure of speech in the Psalms or in the prophets that's obscure and we're not sure what it means. But oftentimes, if it's in the form of synonymous parallelism, we go to the parallel line and it amplifies or it explains what may be ambiguous in a previous line. Now, not all parallelism is synonymous. There's also antithetical parallelism and synthetic parallelism, but we'll talk about that a different time. Okay. So, after this opening summary, verses 3 through 7 go on to give us an account of Jonah's danger and deliverance. So let's read those verses again. Again, uh, Jonah 2, verses 3 through 7. should have marked my place here. Jonah says, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped upon my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So he's describing in a very brief way, in a somewhat poetic way, the things that he experienced as he was sinking into the heart of the seas. And you see him, you kind of sense that he's being entangled by seaweed um, and he can't extricate himself. There's no way that he can save himself to get back to the surface of the water. He is going to drown if God doesn't do something to intervene. And, of course, we know that God did intervene by sending the great fish to rescue him. And I'm sure to Jonah, as he sees the fish approaching, it didn't seem like a rescue. (laughs) It seemed like maybe a a form of death that would be even worse than drowning. Here comes this monstrous (coughs) fish to eat me. But then notice um, that he returns to the theme of verse 2 when we get to verse 7, that he cried out to God and God heard and answered him. He says, when my life was fainting away, as I'm sinking into the depths, entangled with the seaweed, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, I don't think he means this entire prayer that he's praying right here. I think he means another, much simpler prayer. Um, And now, in this prayer, he's recounting the fact that as he's sinking, he 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 offered a quick prayer to the Lord. Remember when... Uh, the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water and he's approaching the ship and they're afraid. They think it's a ghost, a spirit. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's, it is I. 
And Peter said, Lord, if it really is you, command me to come out on the water with you. And Jesus said, come. To Peter's credit, he got out of the boat, right? (laughs) Which is the most amazing thing. People often find fault with him for doubting and sinking. But I think maybe we should give him at least a little bit of credit for actually taking Jesus at his word and getting out of the boat. And so he takes a few steps. He sees the wind and the waves. He begins to fear and he starts to sink. And he offered what I think is the most eloquent, passionate prayer that we find anywhere in Scripture. Lord, help! <laughs> That's all he had time for before he would sink underwater. You know, sometimes we, we, we don't have time to compose our thoughts and, and to have a very uh, beautiful prayer. It's just crying out in the midst of our despair. Lord, help! And I think that was what was going on. He's already underwater, and it's probably only thoughts in his mind. Lord, help! And that's the prayer that he's referring to here. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord in my prayer. Lord, help came to you into your holy temple. Even though Jonah's in the midst of the sea, God from his habitation in the temple in Jerusalem, God's house, he heard. Remember, we talked about how Jonah attempted to flee from the presence of the Lord, how he mistakenly thought, and whether he knew better, which I have to assume he did, but he tried to blot out that knowledge that God is present everywhere. Um, Just like Solomon said, you know, I've built you a house, but can God really be contained in a house made by human hands? Do you not fill the heavens and the earth? Jonah knew this, but he also knew that God was pleased to appoint a specific place for um, for his habitation, uh, to, to manifest his presence. And so he sees help as, God, as coming from God's house um, in Jerusalem. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, verses 8 and 9 describe Jonah's response <clears throat> to God's deliverance. <clears throat> so we have a summary statement in verse 2, an account of Jonah's danger and deliverance in verses 3 through 7. And then Jonah's response to God's deliverance in verses 8 and 9. And the first thing he does is to contrast his experience trusting God with the experience of those who trust in idols. Look at verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, idols are of no help in a time of trouble. Idols can show no steadfast love to those who trust in them because they have no power at all to deliver those who call out upon them, because all they are are idols. I think I've told the story before. I'm not sure in what setting I've done it, whether it was in church so everybody's heard it or in a Sunday school class or Bible study. But there's a story that's told by the Jews of, <clears throat> of Abraham before God calls him. And they believe that God, was, that God called Abraham because of Abraham's merits. We know differently. It was an act of sovereign grace on God's part that he chose Abram, and nobody else. But the Jews tell the story of how Abram's father, uh, uh, whose name was Terah, was an idol manufacturer or idol merchant. And so he had his idol shop, and uh, one day um, his father was out and put Abram, his son, in charge of the shop. And Abram believed that there must only be one God and that an idol was nothing. He didn't yet know who the God was, who he thought was the sole deity. But he knew that idols were nothing. And so his father is out of the shop conducting business somewhere. And Abram takes an axe 
And he smashes all the idols in the shop except for the largest one. And he places the axe in the hands of the largest idol. His father comes back from his business and he says, Son, what has happened here? Who did this? And Abram points to the idol with the axe in his hands. He said, He did. He says, Don't be foolish. An idol can't do that. (laughs) And he tells his father, Exactly. An idol can do nothing. An idol is powerless. And they say that it's on account of his intuitive recognition that there is only one God and that idols are nothing that God called him. Again, we know differently. But the truth is very beautifully expressed in that. An idol can do nothing. Um, And that's what Jonah is saying here. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. If anybody who is an idol worshiper suffers the same kind of experience um, that I was suffering and they called out to their idols and had hope for deliverance, it would all be for nothing. Their idols can do nothing to help them. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, he concludes by making a solemn vow and affirming that he will most assuredly keep it. He says, but with the voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you. In other words, um, once I am completely delivered from my danger here, and my mission is fulfilled, I will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to you in your holy temple. Once this ordeal is over, I will pay homage and officially give thanks by the offering of a sacrifice. This was uh, the making of a vow, and a vow was a very solemn act of prayer. Um, We find it in several places in the scriptures, that, Lord, if you will do thus and so for me, and usually it involves danger, and God seeking a petitioner seeking uh, protection from God. If you will do this for me and keep me safe. Jacob, remember, when he's uh, leaving his father and his mother, and he's going to Padanaram to find a wife for himself, um, and he's on a journey, and he stops for the night, and he puts his head on a stone for a pillow, and he sees a vision or a dream of a stairway that's leading up to heaven. I think Led Zeppelin made a song about this, didn't he? Stairway. Okay, the song's not about that. <clears throat> but he sees the angels of God ascending and descending on it. <clears throat> he gets up in the morning and he says, wow. He said, I had you know, no idea that this is the very house of God. And he sets up that stone and he anoints it with oil and he calls it Bethel, house, Beth, or Bape, El of God. And he makes a vow. And he says, Lord, if you, because God promised him in the dream, you will go, and I'll make your way successful, and I'll bring you safely back again to this land. And God's, uh, Jacob, uh, Jacob says, if you will indeed do this for me, then I'll give you a tenth of everything. Um, so it's, it's a vow. And then when he returns, he fulfills his vow. And so people might make vows of this sort. Maybe they're going out to battle, and they're asking for God's help, and they make a vow. When I return, Jephthah did this. Um, remember that? If I go out to battle and, Lord, you protect me and I come home safely, I will give this or that to you. And usually it took the form of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And there are particular, there's a particular way <clears throat> provided for in the law. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 7 that talks about a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so that's what Jonah is doing here. I will offer you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Then in the next line, verse 9, he says, And what I have vowed, I will pay. All right. In other words, he's expressing a determination to follow through. Lord, these aren't just words. I will do what I have vowed. 
It's not just when I'm in trouble that I'll make a promise and forget about it labor, later after God delivers, delivers me. No, I'm going to follow through. I've told the story before how years ago I saw just a portion of a movie where a man is lost at sea, he's far from land, but he sees it off in the distance and he starts swimming. He says, oh, Lord, if you help me, I'll give you everything I've got. And he gets a little closer and, and safety's just that much closer to him. And he says, Lord, if I make it to land, if you help me get there, I'll give you 90% of everything I get. <laughs> gets a little closer. Lord, 50% of everything I own, I give to you if I make it. And he finally gets on land and he, you know, renegotiates the whole thing. You know, but Jonah's saying, listen, I'm making this vow and I will pay my vow. He's solemnly determined that he will follow through. In Psalm 66, David says, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you. That which my lips uttered, my promise, my vow, and that which my mouth promised when I was in trouble, that I will do. And in Psalm 76, Asaph writes, Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Nobody's under any compulsion. God doesn't require anybody to make a vow of this sort. Um, But if you do make a vow, Solomon says, then you better pay it. So Jonah says, What I have vowed, that I will appear before you in your holy temple with a sacrifice of thanksgiving, that I will do. And then, so confident is he that God will bring him safely through this ordeal that he says in a rather exultingly way, exulting way, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now keep in mind that he says this while he's still in the belly of the fish. And I think there's a lesson for us as well, that when we're in those times of deep darkness and deep distress and times of danger, that even there we can say salvation belongs to the Lord. We can be confident that God will deliver us. Now, it won't always be the case that it will mean that our lives will be preserved. We talked in Sunday school about this young man who went to the island to preach, you know. But I believe that he had a strong sense of God's presence with him and that salvation in a different form was near to him. But we can always confidently say that salvation belongs to the Lord. The Lord saved him from drowning. The Lord saved him from being devoured by the fish. The Lord would save him from the hands of the Assyrians, whom he might think would kill him and might very well have killed him had he not had protection from the Lord. I mean, there's every reason to believe. I mean, here's this foreign prophet coming from the land of our enemies. How dare he come into our land and tell us that we need to repent or our city is going to be destroyed? Um, He had every reason to be afraid that they might do to him what he had seen and heard had been done to so many of his countrymen. So the Lord would save him from the hands of the Assyrians. The Lord would save the people of Nineveh from the judgment that they deserved. The Lord saved Jonah from his sin and folly, and thank the Lord he saves us from our sin and folly as well through the death and resurrection of our Lord. A greater than Jonah is here, and a a greater deliverance from death in Jesus Christ, literal death, and from the grave. Thank the Lord for that. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear God and Father in heaven, how we thank you that truly you are a God of salvation, a God of deliverance, um, and that you are faithful, Lord, to your people. 
Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to take to heart the lessons that we learned from Jonah, those that we have learned in previous messages and that which we learned today and in the messages to come. Lord, that you are a God of great compassion. You are a God who delights to show mercy, that in your heart, Lord, mercy triumphs over judgment. Help us, Father, to uh, avail ourselves to seek your mercy before the day of judgment comes. I thank you, Father, for each of those here today who, Lord, I know have trusted you and looked to Christ. But, Father, for family members, for friends, for co-workers, for others in our community who have yet to know Christ, even, Father, for those who have treated us very badly, those whom we might consider to be enemies, Lord, let us not be like Jonah, who would begrudge your mercy to them. But, Lord, even if it would please you, make us the agents by which they might come to receive your mercy as we share Christ with them. Our Father, we ask all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.